God Almighty, we come before you today and we thank you for your word. Your word that teaches and instructs us. Your word that helps us to understand a little bit more of who you are. Father, as we dig into this passage today, I just pray that you move us by your spirit. And Father, I thank you for your great love that refuses to leave us the same. And so, Lord, as we hear your word today, would you transform us by it? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so here we are, the last Sunday of Advent, at the end of our journey through the book of Ruth and the conclusion of our While You Can Wait or While We Wait series. Before we dig into chapter four, though, let's take a moment to recap where we've been thus far. If you remember, week one was While We Wait, Hope in the Emptiness. And in this first week's message, Pastor Chris spoke of Ruth's presence and how that brought hope to Naomi and how our hope in the midst of barrenness and desolation comes through God's presence. The hope we have is that God, God himself carries us through whatever it is we face. Just as an aside, make a note of that word presence because it's in a part of an important equation that we'll get to in just a bit. In week two, Wendy preached, while we wait, joy to the world. This second week, we heard of God's provision and protection of Ruth and Naomi through their kinsman or guardian redeemer, Boaz. So provision and protection, also important P words in our equation. But even more, we learned that the true joy we have is found in Jesus, who defeated sadness and despair, who came in power to die for our sins and restore our joy. And then last week, week three, the message was, while we wait, endure through love. And Pastor Chris spoke about chesed or, or unusual kindness and how it always finds a way to redeem we saw it in Ruth's re, uh, her actions towards Naomi, Boaz's actions towards both women, and ultimately the covenant love shown to us by God, which includes all three of those P words, presence, provision, protection. Now, are there any math buffs here today? Anyone? Okay. If there are, and you're just like a closet math buff, you might like this part. Let me show you how the book of Ruth can be written mathematically. We have presence plus provision plus protection equals peace. And if we look at this from a fundamental human level, don't we know this to be true? As human beings, we have basic needs that need to be met. We need all the three Ps on the left side of the equation in order to experience peace, right? For example, you've probably heard stories of infants in orphanages who received little contact, and evidence shows they will, with often, often without human contact, they'll fail to thrive. Presence and love is critical. Likewise, even the most introverted person if isolated for an extended period of time, will start to lose their faculties. 
Remember Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway? Not exactly a picture of peace. How about provision? Without life's necessities, the basic necessities of life, it's pretty hard to be at peace. And how about provision? I've seen this firsthand on mission trips in Ethiopia and in India. I will never forget the desperation on the face, uh, the faces of this one impoverished couple. Their baby was sick. And they didn't have the means to help him to buy medicine or to take him for medical care. So they held him out begging for anyone, someone, to help. The provision of these basic necessities would have brought them peace. But without that, they were wrought with anguish. And protection. Think of the myriad of ways that protection brings us peace of mind. I know that when my kids go out biking and their heads are protected with helmets, I have a greater sense of peace. But there's another kind of peace, one not dependent on human effort or doing, but on the behind-the-scenes workings of a loving God. And this peace is much deeper. Nonetheless, the math still works. Because we have God's peace, God's provision, God's protection. And that equals ultimate peace. It's important to point out here that God does, in fact, use people as a means of accomplishing his purposes. But at the end of the day, it's his divine orchestration that brings about our ultimate or true peace. And when we look at Ruth chapter 4, we'll see how just, just how true this is. For starters, chapter 3 has left us with a major issue that is yet unresolved, and that's Naomi's lack of an heir. Without, who would inherit Elimelech's land? Also, remember, we've just come from a nighttime encounter on the threshing room floor, where Ruth boldly proclaims her intentions to Boaz. As Pastor Chris pointed out last week, this is a scandalous scene. The problem here is not lack of desire. On the contrary, remember Boaz has been watching Ruth, and he knew that she was a woman of noble character. However, being a good and honest man, Boaz must work and act with integrity. He knows that there is a redeemer closer than himself. So Boaz is careful to follow proper channels, including legitimate legal process. And this speaks once again to his protection of Ruth. And there's one of our P words again, protection. He didn't want there to be any grounds for their union to be protested, nor did he want to run the risk of losing Elimelech's land. Keeping it within the family was a must for both Ruth and Naomi. And then in the very first verse of chapter four, we read, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Now you have to understand that the gate was a busy place, especially in the morning. But it was Boaz's best chance at finding the other kinsmen because people passed through there on their way to the fields. Further, once a kinsman was found, the matter of redemption could be settled quickly. The gate, as has been mentioned in previous weeks, 
was also the place where legal transactions took place, and the elders of the town required as witnesses would be readily available. And then, just like that, Boaz sits down and in walks the very guy he was looking for. Some might say, to borrow a phrase from Wendy Workman, it just so happened. They might say the timing was a fluke or a coincidence. But as previously mentioned, the reality is we have a God that is present, known to be working in the background, inconspicuously orchestrating such precise timing for his purposes and the good of those he loves. We'll see this more clearly at the end. Now, in very short order, we're told that Boaz took 10 of the elders and he said to them, sit here. And they did so. Why the number 10? One commentator explains that this was the smallest number that was complete but effective. And also by precisely detailing these preparations, the narrator is stressing the outcome would be protected as it would be legally valid. And I just want to briefly pause here because I think there's something for us to glean from this in the 21st century. This whole exchange is about more than the land. It becomes a legally binding marriage. In the world today, there are so many people that take marriage casually. In fact, some even see it as unnecessary, and they might even ask questions like, why do I need a piece of paper to prove my love? Can't we just be married before God? Friends, Boaz is known to be a godly man. And in this scene, he demonstrates the high value that God places on legally recognized marriage. I know that this might touch a bit of a nerve for some. But please know, it is spoken with the utmost of love. If you are a believer living as though married with no intention of formalizing it, there might be something lacking in a love that doesn't want to proclaim itself before God and witnesses. This is not a judgment, but it is something to consider in your quiet time with God. Let him speak to your heart. So moving on, in verses 3 to 8, we have this back and forth conversation between Boaz and the the kinsmen. It starts with the piece of land in question. And initially, the kinsman thinks this is a pretty sweet deal. And he agrees to redeem it, though it's not yet formal at this point because he hasn't addressed the elders. It's still just a conversation between him and Boaz. But then Boaz adds the detail that purchase of the land also includes the acquisition of Ruth the Moabite. Well, why is Ruth's place of origin important enough to mention? It shows that she is not a Jew by birth. In fact, the people of Moab Moab were known to be hostile towards the Jews, um, or the Israelites. So, but there's a bit of a spoiler alert here that Ruth becomes part of the line of David. A quick look at Boaz, and we see he is a descendant of Salmon and Rahab. It wasn't that long ago that we did a series in Joshua and we met Rahab there. Do we remember who she was? In Joshua 6.25, she's identified as a prostitute. But later 
In James 2.25, we read, she was considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies. In 2 Peter 3.9, it clearly states that the Lord is not wanting anyone to perish, but come to repentance. And so Ruth and Boaz coming into the line of David is a foreshadowing of sorts. It's showing that anyone's past can be redeemed and that redemption is not for the Jews alone, but was intended for all. But back to the story at hand. As readers, we come to this point where we might be a little on edge. What is this near redeemer going to say when Ruth is added to the deal? I'm pretty sure we all hope that we find Ruth and Boaz together. And if that's how we feel, I can only imagine how Boaz felt. I'd be sweating bullets, and I'd be waiting with bated breath. And then we all let out a sigh of relief as we read verse 6. The Redeemer says, Then I cannot redeem it, for I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. For the kinsman, the cost was too high. Most likely, he would have had to use assets from his own estate to buy the land. He could lose on the investment if Ruth's first child laid claim to uh, the land without cost as Elimelech's heir. There would be expense in caring for and feeding Ruth and Naomi, plus any children that came along. And Ruth's firstborn would also be in line to inherit a share in the kinsman's legacy. Isn't it interesting that in all of this, the Redeemer's name is never mentioned? Right from the get-go, when Boaz calls him over, the near kinsman's name is not used. Certainly, Boaz would have known it, but the narrator seems to admit it, omit it. Some have hypothesized that this was intentional to spare the kinsman's descendants embarrassment over his conduct. Some have said remaining nameless implies some kind of judgment, that he was not worthy of honor because he de- declined to fulfill his obligations as the nearest kinsman. Still others dismiss it as an insignificant detail. Regardless, this relative has now waived his rights, which he legally formalizes with the removal of his sandal as per custom, thus allowing Boaz to make his move. And Boaz does so swiftly. The next verse, verse 9, tells us, Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also required, acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. Verses 11 and 12 are very interesting. After the elders and all the people at the gate affirm themselves as witnesses, thus ratifying this agreement, we read of them blessing Ruth and Boaz. I'm just going to read this. They say, May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your home, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring of the, 
through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. And when we look at this list of names here, we note that each one is a patriarchal wife or a descendant of one, meaning that they're an important part in the building up of Israel. And so the elders and the people of the gate who are speaking this over these newlyweds are essentially praying the same, that the same would be true for Ruth and Boaz and their offspring. The interesting part is that all the patriarchal wives, some that aren't listed in this passage, require God's intervention to conceive. Look at Sarah and Rebecca in the book of Genesis, Hannah in 1 Samuel, and Samson's mother in the book of Judges. Now, Ruth was presumably with Malon for 10 years, according to Ruth 1.4. And in this time, since they had no offspring, it's generally assumed that they struggled with fertility. This probably plays into the words spoken over Ruth and Boaz by the elders at the gate. And then in verse 13, when he, Boaz, made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. So we see once again God's presence, provision, and protection. His presence and provision are found in his intervention leading to the birth of a baby who would become an heir. The family would now be preserved, and the land would remain with them. God's protection and peace is found in the settled security she now had that Naomi had wished her in chapter 1, verse 9, and that she had schemed for her in chapter 3, verse 1. And all of this is an answer to Boaz's prayer from chapter 2, verse 12, which said, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Though most of this book has Ruth and Boaz at center stage, they now make an exit, and the spotlight turns back to Naomi. In fact, the heading in my Bible is, Naomi gains a son. We read that the same women who had greeted her and borne witness to her cries of grief and barrenness in chapter one, now celebrate and affirm God's further provision and protection, because this baby will renew Naomi's life and sustain her in her old age. And finally, in the closing scene, Naomi takes that baby in her arms. And the women exclaim with gladness, Naomi has a son. Though Ruth is the one that gave birth, Naomi will play a pivotal role in caring for and raising this baby, which is why they say this. And together, they name him Obed, meaning servant or to serve. So where this story begins with Naomi's loss, it ends with her gain. It begins with death, but it ends with life. As one commentator said, God turns Naomi's setbacks to joy, even when she was oblivious to his grace. Can you picture the look on Naomi's face? after all she had endured, holding that baby. I imagine one word to describe it, peace. And just in case you're tempted to gloss over the lineage 
in verses 18 to 22, or dismiss it as unimportant. Hold up. Read it again. In fact, go back to the last half of verse 17. He, referring to this baby Obed, became the father of Jesse, the father of David. The family line is then mapped out, and this fact is repeated in verse 22. And if you don't know why this is significant, I just invite you to turn with me to Matthew 1.1. This is the first book in the New Testament. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So at the outset of the book of Ruth, we sit here thinking the story is about them, Naomi and Ruth. We feel bad for them and we wonder how God's going to redeem this story. And then we get to the end and we think, wow, this is so great. Look what God has done. He is so good. He has brought hope in the birth of this baby to this family. The family is finally at peace. And this is an appropriate response for sure. But the book of Ruth is part of a much bigger story. The story of another baby who grows up to become our kinsman redeemer. Yours and mine, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Through his death on the cross, our slates are wiped clean. And we are reconciled to God the Father. But we have to believe. And we have to understand that Jesus didn't stay dead. He ascended to glory three days later and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he promised that he is coming again. In Revelation 24, sorry, Revelation 21, verse 4, it says that a day is coming when he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. So no matter what we are going through, we are not a people without hope because the best is yet to come. Amen? Our ultimate peace is found in him alone. His presence, his provision, his protection. And if you believe that this is all possible for others, but doesn't it extend to the likes of you, think again. Go back to that genealogy. And look into the sordid pasts of some of the people in that line. Someone like David. I'm not sure, but there might be someone here today that needs to hear this. Maybe you need to hear the words that God's arm is not too short, even for you. You are not beyond his grasp. He loves you. When I was in high school math, we were often given formula sheets to solve different problems. But some were best committed to memory because they were needed and used so often. This one's worth remembering. God's presence, plus God's provision, plus God's protection, equals ultimate peace.
I just want to invite the worship team to come back up. Brothers and sisters, as we go into this final week of Advent, there might be chaos in making the final preparations for a nice meal or finding gifts for others. Maybe you've been run ragged. Maybe you're grieving. Maybe the season is full of stress for a variety of reasons. On the other hand, maybe it's truly a time of joy and celebration for you. However you find yourself, I would encourage you to take time and make space for Jesus. Seeking God's face and spending time worshiping him. That's the only way that you'll know real peace. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, to be present. Thank you for the many ways that you uh, are present to us, that you provide for us, that you offer us protection, and ultimately that we can have true peace found in you alone. Would you bless us now, Lord, in your name.